This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Welcome to this edition of our Asia podcast series. Today we're talking about the geopolitics and the geoeconomics of Asia's supply chains with Andy Gilholm, our lead North Asia analyst based in Korea, and Rima Bhattacharya, one of our South Asia analysts based in Singapore. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, a regional trade agreement sponsored by China, has just been concluded. It is the first agreement of its kind to include all of Factory Asia, that is the economies of the region that make things for export, Japan, Korea, China, and the newest member of Vietnam. These are also countries that have emerged strongly from the recent pandemic. How might these changes affect supply chains going forward? How will it affect multinationals? And Vietnam aside, are South and Southeast Asian countries likely to benefit as new manufacturing jurisdictions? So, Andy, Rima, we're talking today about supply chains and trade agreements and ESG and what really matters, what's important for our corporate listeners. So let's start with two agreements that were signed in the last couple of months, both of which involve China, both of which made pretty big international headlines, the first one being RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is between China and a number of Asian countries. In fact, most Asian countries, with the exception of India, which dropped out kind of at the last minute, that's now in the process of being ratified, if I'm not mistaken, at the individual country level. The other one is, which is more recent, is the CAI signed between China and the European Union, an investment agreement. So maybe give us a little bit of top line of what those are for supply chains. Does it matter for Asia particularly, but for the rest of the world? What are your thoughts? Well, I think with RCEP and CAI being signed, you know, the latter part of 2020 and the start of 2021, there's a big narrative there that, you know, puts this all together with the wider picture of how comparatively strong China is looking economically, given the rest of the world's problems at the moment. And it kind of looks like a, you know, a big victory year for for China mm-hmm. on on trade. I'm not sure that it's quite as simple as that if you look a little bit further down into it. I think with RCEP, I think there's a fairly widespread perception that it's definitely worth doing for all these countries involved. There are clear benefits there for most of them, but this is not a game changer. You know, it's fairly kind of marginal stuff over a very long period of time that to a large degree, you know, cements things that were already happening, bring some more efficiencies, but it's not taking any countries and kind of, you know, revolutionizing where they sit in the region or kind of, you know, greatly changing China's role vis-a-vis these other countries. So I don't think that's a, a game changer, despite the symbolic value. Obviously, there's a very interesting angle in terms of India's non-participation, which I'll leave Rima to talk about. And then on the CAI issue, I think that's more significant, but because it was less clear that that was going to 
to happen at this point. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to be cynical about that and look at any of these agreements and say, well, you know, that's not enforceable. This is fairly shallow, et cetera, et cetera. With CAI, I think there are some aspects of that that, you know, really will make a difference for some European companies. But it's also, I think, a big mistake to look at that and say, well, that's an example of, you know, the EU and European countries aligning with China, because I think it was touch and go whether this would happen. And it's kind of against the run of play, if you like. I think it's not going to to change the fact that the overall trend in a lot of European countries in 2020 was more negative in terms of where perceptions of mm-hmm. and political attitudes towards China mm-hmm. Were, mm-hmm. were going. So I don't think we should read too much into that. Okay, interesting. So what you're saying, Andy, is it's it's not kind of China ascendant from, from the perspective of international trade and investment, kind of the way it's been portrayed. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah, I think the real the real action happens now from 2021 when the U.S. will kind of return to the field of play, and I think be warmly welcomed onto it by quite a lot of these countries. And if you look at some of the other things that have been going on at the same time in the security and economic sphere, things like developments with the Quad, with you know Australia, mm-hmm. Japan, yeah. India and the US, or this uh, resilient supply chain initiative that, again, is the, is the Quad countries, things that would not have been likely a year ago, but the you know, deteriorating Chinese relations with India, with Australia, to some extent, a much lesser extent with Japan. I think we should look at it in terms of where those trends are heading rather than just looking at it, you know, 2020 scorecard, which looks more like a, you know, a win for China. I think the trends are more instructive than that scorecard. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Good perspective, Rima. Yeah. That brings us to India, which had been fairly involved in the RCEP process and then kind of stepped out kind of at the 11th hour. And in parallel, however, with, you know, the prime minister's push, for supply chains to relocate to India from elsewhere, including China, which seems to to continue to be a pretty big push on the part of the government, at least what they're talking about. I'm not sure how much is happening on the ground, but that's why we have you here. So tell us what's actually happening on the ground. Is it, are they serious about it or is it just talk? So thanks, Dane. So Yes, India exited RCEP after negotiating the deal for seven years. I mean, while India is often tagged as a troublemaker in deal negotiations, I frankly saw this coming simply because there were several unresolved issues left on the table, be it market access for China, non-tariff barriers uh, faced by Indian exporters, etc. I think apart from economic factors, of course, as Andy mentioned, India's decision to not join RCEP has a strategic dimension given China's leading role in the pact. I think since Modi's announcement, the border clashes with China and Ladakh have sealed India's decision to sort of stay firm and leaves no scope for any further trade negotiations in the coming year. But to your broader question on India's bid to capitalize on shifting supply chains, many see RCEP as a missed opportunity. Uh, For many analysts, it was a short, short way of India to quickly access global supply chains. But from the way I see it, the way, you know, given the structural weaknesses of India's own manufacturing sector, India was never well-placed to 
sort of fully utilize the benefits of a mega trade deal like RCEP. I think what India requires and where it does not really focus enough on is a well-crafted industrial policy that can genuinely address the concerns of its manufacturing sector and its industrial competitiveness. So the government's done very little in terms of improving you know, cost and quality of power, mm. high logistic costs, low labor productivity. These, they are, these are fundamental issues that have been plaguing India's sort of manufacturing sector and its ability to tap into supply chains for decades. So I don't see a lot of that happening. There's obviously a lot of high decibel grandstanding, which I think will continue in the in the coming years. Mm, interesting. And I, and I guess it's also fair to say that India typically is much stronger in services than they are in in, in the manufacturing side. The way that the way that um, and I think RCEP, the way I read it, you know, kind of very high level, is very much focused on products, goods which, as you say, has not really traditionally been India's strongest playing, you know, strongest hand, so to speak. Absolutely. Interesting you mentioned that, Dan, because, I mean, only in services alone, India has a more strategic relationship with the U.S., with EU, with and mm-hmm. it doesn't have any FTAs with these regions. I think that's where India will focus its efforts in the, in the coming years, although there are multiple teething issues until it, I mean, both countries sign on the dotted line. But I think that's where India sees a clear opportunity and will actually benefit their services sector, which is driving the economy. Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see because part of RCEP also involves addressing the issue of data and how data is controlled. And so that will be a very interesting, I think, space to watch. How much of it is mandatory? How much of it takes place? As Andy said, there's a long lead-in time for a lot of these RCEP provisions. But it it is a bit like the USMCA, the agreement between the United States, China, and Mexico, updated for the modern, or not updated in this case, it's new, right? Addressing issues that weren't there before, such as cross-border e-commerce and how data is managed and maintained and processed and exported and things like that. So that's a space to continue to watch. And it is one of those risk spaces, as we know, digital nationalism, we sometimes call it. And we also know that the supply chains have been shifting quite apart from agreements, RCEP or CAI or otherwise. We know that supply chains have been shifting, not out of China per se, but diversifying a little bit. So we talk about kind of, you know, regionalization, depending on where your consumer base is or where you're headquartered. There may be countries that have kind of fallen a bit off the headlines, whether it's Mexico or Poland or Romania, you know, coming back to play as companies regionalize a little bit more. Their supply chain, certainly Vietnam has become one of the manufacturing goods space or manufacturing for export space. Vietnam has certainly been, you know, the top winner from this process that's been going on for probably five years. And interestingly, you know, Chinese companies were the first to actually, in preparation for TPP, of which China wasn't a part, you know, the first to recognize that and start shifting to Vietnam, but then, you know, kind of in parallel or very hot on the heels of Korean companies and like Samsung and companies from Taiwan and Hong Kong. So it's certainly been the winner so far in Asia. But as we know from our own familiarity with these economies and talking to our clients, there are kind of new risks that pop up when you shift your supply chains, whether they're climatic risks or governance risks, integrity risks, if you will. Let's just broadly put it under the framework of ESG. And I think one of the things that I find fascinating about that topic is that the E and the S, I think, are pretty straightforward. The G part is really tricky because it is highly subjective. 
it will look yep. different depending on where you're sitting, right? And it changes almost <laughs> almost daily as to what is acceptable and what is not. So, Remo, why don't you give us a comment first on what you see as some of those ESG risks being as these supply chains continue to shift around the region or the, or the globe, for that matter? Thanks, Dane. I think, again, I mean, ESG has been one big success story for 2020. A best case scenario would see the pandemic pave the way for a sustainability reset of global investments and supply chains and consumption patterns. But at the same time, we must remember Asia's factories have built their commercial success and competitive advantage over the last several decades on things like low-cost manufacturing, low wages, and limited investment in automation and safety. So pardon my skepticism, but it's kind of hard to imagine how governance, as you said it, the G can be quickly implemented across this region without a fundamental rethink of what constitutes as wealth and value in the global south. Meanwhile, the pandemic has just wiped out decades of socioeconomic progress in a few short months in these Mm -hmm. countries. So, and there's immense special pressure on these governments to bring back jobs and boost employment. So what I think will happen in 2021 is these leaders resorting to familiar tools, you know, low hanging fruits, like diluting land laws, labor laws, corporate governance standards to jumpstart job creation. Now, these challenges in Asia become more complicated if you consider the fact that there is no grand global green order for us to rely on. I mean, There are standards being set by the IMFs and the OECDs of the world. There are a plethora of reporting, ESG reporting standards that companies can pick and choose from. But we have fundamentally not agreed on what constitutes this ESG, how to measure it in the short or the long term. So now, if you you look at that, uh, ESG investing in Asia is going to become extremely complicated in the coming years. I think what we will see is a proliferation of greenwashing scandals, a lot of them emanating from the Asia arms of businesses with large supply chains, and a lot of litigation risks and reputational issues hitting businesses in the coming years. Yeah, that's that's a good point. The whole greenwashing story, and as we know, in a lot of these jurisdictions, there's a lot left, you know, there's a lot to be desired in terms of the whole ESG story, things that have kind of been swept under the carpet or ignored uh, around some of the topics that you discussed, and some of which actually, in theory, are addressed in the CAI, things around workers' rights and those types of topics. So, Andy, let me just come back to you, not specifically on CAI, but on obviously one of the risks of the supply chain's shifting to some degree to new jurisdictions, but still remaining predominantly, depending on what sector you're in or, uh, you know, in China or being connected to China somehow, as we know, even if it's not kind of your first tier supplier or even maybe your second tier supplier, it will be your third tier supplier that you may not know about that actually, you know, has all of their production in China as an example, whether it's a Chinese company or not. So obviously the concentration risk, if you will, the China concentration risk is still a risk. And then there are kind of ESG risks that are specific, quote unquote, to China or or maybe unique to China. But what does that look like going forward? Because as we know, China has become in many ways a more compliant jurisdiction, but compliant with their own rules and regulations and laws, not necessarily. And those don't always, I should say, those don't always look like, you know, the things that foreign companies have to comply with in their home jurisdictions. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these issues in China, the situation hasn't really changed that much over several years in a lot of areas, like on the the labor front, for example. 
And in some areas, you would have to say that the direction of travel has been broadly positive, albeit in some cases from a, a fairly poor base environmental protection being mm. one area where you know local enforcement and local standards have become much more stringent for local companies also applying to foreign companies. I think a lot of what's changed really in, in China, and this is I'm sure true in a lot of other places as well, but particularly for China on something like the labor side of things, it's the level of scrutiny and the level mm. of political and media attention that has changed. And obviously a big factor in that is the level of US political attention to the Xinjiang situation and labor issues, which you know a skeptic would say is a political tool, but regardless of what you view on that is, I don't think it's gonna go away. And it's obviously not just limited to the US and it's something that's extremely difficult in practical terms for companies to really get a handle on in terms of really having visibility deep into their supply chains and in, you know, into some of the less direct exposure that they might have on that front. So that kind of attention, I think, is not going to go away because of the change of government in the US. Do you think it's going to get worse? I guess that's the next question, given that it is a it will be a democratic administration and typically the Democratic Party has focused more on things like human rights and workers' rights. Do you think it's going to get fundamentally worse? Well, it certainly seems like one of the areas of U.S.-China relations that the Biden administration will will focus more rather than less on, because of course, as you as you know, in the Trump administration, those issues weren't really much of a focus to begin with. It's only relatively recently, and particularly in the last eighteen months or so that they've moved much more prominently on the political agenda in Washington and um, you know, events in Hong Kong, part, part of that as well. So I, I think, yeah, if anything, we would expect that the attention, because of course, a lot of it is driven by Congress and by legislation. It, it's not yeah. only things coming out of the out of the White House. So there are still things that are kind of in progress um, from the legislative side as well that haven't, you know, kind of peaked, I guess, if you like, and they're not all about um, the level of White House focus and, and a purely a function of how good or bad US-China relations are. I think there's kind of a momentum on those issues that is still building. I think there's much less chance of some of the kind of relatively sudden moves like, you know, executive orders on those issues or things that don't mm. go through a more traditional you know, consulting process with mm. stakeholders in Washington, including the business community, compared to the pace of how things have sometimes emerged um, in the past year or so. But yeah, I don't think those issues are going to be shelved um, and they're not going to be one of the areas of the relationship where we see an attempt to to say, OK, let's kind of stabilize or put a lid on this area of the relationship even if some of these other issues remain hot. Mm. I think these issues we're talking about here will stay very much in the hot category. Yeah, and I think it's also, it was interesting over the last couple of weeks when the incoming 
or to be um, mm-hmm. officials of the Biden administration were kind of criticizing the CAI for, on some of those aspects, right? Along the lines of how can the EU sign this with China, given, you know, what's happening in China and your commitment, the EU's commitment to human rights. I thought that was interesting. Rima, we're going to give you the last couple of minutes or the last word, if you will, because you were speaking so eloquent on the ESG risks. Top line, you know, what are the things that, based on your experience, that we our clients really need to pay attention to and how to how to kind of mitigate some of those risks in some of these more emerging jurisdictions, let's put it that way, kind of top takeaways, what say you? I think, Dane, the top takeaway for me is actually the renewable sector. I mean, we've seen tremendous activity and uptake in, in renewables. I mean, it's also a component of this massive ESG push globally and as well as in Asia. And I think just the way China and India have become sort of solar and wind power powerhouses now. They're the cheapest places to sort of manufacture these panels and, and, and that and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think the way the governments are going about it, I mean, be it whether it's India, whether it's Bangladesh, and I'm sure it's also true for China, flouting environmental norms to just set up these massive parks. There's, there's absolutely, they've completely done, sort of done away with EIAs and things like that. I think this could create much more problems than it solves. I think for investors, they see, oh, the country is open and the government sort of may pushing renewables in a big way. We are going to get land for cheap. Things are going to be easy. But I think I would definitely draw caution because the way the land's being aggregated, all the the, the, the kind of, you know, ESG risks coming out of renewables themselves is, is something that's quite worrying and that can definitely create a lot of long-term reputational problems as well as business continuity problems for businesses. Okay, so that's a specific sector. What about for kind of what we sometimes call factory Asia, right. as it shifts from, you know, places that probably our clients a bit are a bit more used to, whether it's China, Korea, Taiwan, as it shifts to places like Vietnam or Bangladesh or Indonesia, where that happens, what are the top things to kind of watch out for? I think, I mean, really the post-pandemic reality of factory Asia is very different. So the traditional problems that we we imagine with, you know, Asia's factories, I think they have the chips have fallen in different ways and they've affected different countries differently. I think Vietnam has come out as the way they've managed their pandemic response. I think they've come out as a clear winner as compared to Bangladesh, for example, which is so much more experienced with, you know, environmental crisis, but has completely bungled its response. And I think I mean, it, I want to go back to the point I made earlier. So, you know, the socioeconomic problems that were already there, which are critical for sort of ESG compliance and to sort of devise a, a framework, they've become more brittle, especially in countries like Bangladesh. And the government is more vulnerable to sort of, uh, you know, play around with the rules and flout norms. So I think, and and in, the, in a time where measurement is so dicey, I mean, you don't know, I mean, there are no in, uh, sort of standards to sort of measure, I mean, what ESG is in these markets. I think it's going to make everything more, I think, non-transparent. And it's going to be very difficult to sort of separate what is fact and what is fiction. Good, good point and a good thing to remember as companies enter those markets. Mm-hmm. 
Andy, Rima, thank you very much. This was this is an evolving topic, as we know. It's a bit of a movable feast, so I suspect we'll have to come back and, uh, and look at some of these things again in the future. But thank you very much for taking these complicated uh, stories and weaving them into a coherent narrative for us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dean. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.